Hello. As the government disappears for cheap holidays in other people's misery, specifically ours, and wilderness festival goers inexplicably fail to pelt a chillaxing David Cameron with eight-pound halloumi wraps, it's time for a dog days of summer edition of Romaniacs. Having failed to impose any leadership on Brexit, Theresa May's government has left the prospect of no deal hanging over the country like that essay you'll definitely deal with when you get back from Ibiza. But hard Brexters like Mog and Liam Fox are seizing the opportunity to normalise no deal, as if it's no big deal, because a little shortage of food and medicine never hurt anybody. We'll check that later. <laughs> Maybe it did. I'm Dorian Linsky, and it's Romaniacs Reassemble edition this week, as we're delighted to welcome Ros Taylor of the LSE Truth, Trust and Technology Commission back to the show after too long. Hi, Ros, how are you? I'm fine. I've missed, missed you. you. We, we've missed you too. <laughs> yeah. And, and we haven't had you on the show since the story of Leave EU's dark ads broke. Uh, and on Twitter, you pointed out that two of these dodgy ads were targeted only at women. Uh, whale meat and bullfighting. Yeah, two I of was, the things. Uh, yeah. <laughs> women's magazines, they're never off the cover. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll Ten tell you great why looks they're... for summer and uh, whale meat. <laughs> I'll tell you why they're not on the summer, because we ladies don't like hearing about that kind of stuff. Bulls being killed and whales being killed is not nice. No, I was very excited when they released these. Uh, there was this dump, basically, uh, which had come about because of the uh, Department for Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee's uh, digging, and they had finally got all this information from Facebook about the leave ads and it turned out and I did quite a lot of digging uh, took me about an hour or so anyway uh, and um, found that all the whale meat ads and all the bullfighting ads were aimed entirely at women so the only way you would have seen them as a bloke would be if a woman shared them and then it popped up on your feed because of that now this is really significant because they all they were all on the same day all the um, whale meat ones, 5th of May 2016, and they were all uh, served to 1.3, between 1.3 and 5.5 million impressions. That's a lot. Wow. You know, even if 5.5 million impressions, that's that's coming up to probably a quarter of, uh, if not more, a third of the voting, of the voting, uh, female voting population in this country. So that's a lot. And this is, these are issues on which there was no public debate I mean, during the ramps Brexit. Bullfighting, whale meat, just not tackled because they're flipping irrelevant to Brexit. But that just shows you women were encouraged to vote leave on issues totally unscrutinised by the lead, uh, by the by the media. Were they aiming it at them because they're women, or that was just it? So happened that the algorithms that were that, that were no. relevant. No, they aimed at women. Hmm. Yeah, just for women, just for the girls. <laughs> you know, if you clicked, if you clicked on the whale meat one, it took you to another one mm. um, that was about how the EU is killing polar bears. Yeah, that's so right. Yeah. That got me thinking that presumably there must be a sliver of a demographic that kind of loves whales but hates bears. <laughs> 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 so they'd be like, I goes, oh, oh, well, bears. oh, it swings I like a, bulls it swings and whales. Who cares about bears? <laughs> I goes, well, I do hate bears. So, <laughs> undecided. Uh, also back on the show is Ian Dunn, the editor of politics.co.uk, who's been on his holidays. Hi, Ian. Hello. Where did you go? Uh, Turkey. Did you miss Brexit? No. <laughs> <laughs> Did you not get the kind of like the weird kind of build up of 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 angst and rage I get when I uh not when I go on holiday but just when I'm not on the podcast for a bit? No. <laughs> no, no. I mean I go away and I just don't really check Twitter or anything like that so I, I'm not even really aware of what the time is let alone what's going on back here. Well when I was on holiday unfortunately the the labor anti-semitism thing was was blowing up and I just couldn't I couldn't look away. There was always something going on. It was so horrific. And so I was constantly just like family members going, "What's wrong with your face?" Because <laughs> I had my like, like, like high school, my <laughs> weird rage scrunch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading bad news. 
Um, so I should have just smashed up the Wi-Fi. Uh, then the rest of the family would have the rage face on, I imagine. <laughs> mm. Oh, yeah, I didn't think that through. Yeah. And they go, just remember, at least Dad's not thinking about anti-Semitism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Completing our in-depth squad for the day is the cyclotic cyclone himself, Alexandreou. <laughs> right, welcome back. Hello. <laughs> Without wanting to make you into our, our, our grease desk, this month Greece finally comes to the end of its bailouts from the financial crisis. Um, now, obviously, Greece was a major issue for sort of Lexit people, and I think it was probably the strongest argument yeah. in many ways against the, against the EU. Um, what's the not not to ask you to speak for an entire nation, um, but what's the what's the kind of what I mean? What I know what the polls showing? What are people what are people in in Greece at this stage think of the EU and the way that they've uh, they've been treated? I think Lexit was a big issue for Lex. Uh, sorry, Greece was a big issue for Lexit people because they misunderstand pretty much everything about Greece. Mm. Um, so they transpose a situation where we have a left government <laughs> that's being constrained and anchored to the right by the EU, and they think they can transpose it to a situation where they have actually a really right-wing government that's being tethered to the centre by the EU, both right now and historically. Um, and so the idea becomes we can leave the EU and be like Greece. Well, who'd want to be like Greece right now, frankly? Um, the second point is that Greece never, ever considered leaving the EU, ever. Grexit was about leaving the euro, leaving the, current, the currency. Mm. It was never up for debate that Greece was going to cease being a member of the EU Support for being a member of the EU never fell below 70%, even at the darkest, darkest point of the crisis. And it was actually the EU threatening to chuck us out <laughs> that forced Tsipras to accept the compromise that he did in that mm. first summit. So um, I guess my, my only explanation is that Lexit people are not very bright. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that hanging. <laughs> we'll, we'll check that later. <laughs> uh, later in the show, we'll be looking at the latest so-called expert to experience a punishment beating for failing to cheerlead for Brexit, Bank of England Chief Mark Carney. We'll be talking about a novel argument in The Telegraph that there should be more right-wing policies in government to stop UKIP from staging a resurgence. No better way to fox racists than by giving them some racism. And how Brexit could well hit ageing Leave voters in a place very close to home, the availability of carers for the old and infirm. But first, there are a lot of fans of Roz's lovely voice out there. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> so today she's doing the updates and reminders. We'll have Alex's lovely voice again soon. Good. Ian and I have unlovely voices, but we make up for it with a lot of moxie. If you can't face Monday mornings because they're too far away from your Friday fix of Romaniacs, don't worry. Our lovely Patreon backers get an exclusive column from one of the Romaniacs team straight to their inbox at the start of the week, covering some aspect of the Brexit mess that we couldn't fit into the show or that Theresa May sprang on us at tea time on Sunday. And that's on top of those very desirable Romaniacs T-shirts, Romaniacs mugs, perfect for a year of file macchiato or a good old British cup of tea, and hip Romaniacs tote bags too. Go to patreon.com and search Romaniacs to find out how you can help us fight the good fight. And our next live show is coming up soon at the Leicester Square Theatre, London, on Wednesday the 12th of September. Tickets are all but gone, but there's still a few and you'll get a discount if you're an existing or a brand new Patreon backer. Come down for at least 90 minutes of live remoning, plus a chance to meet your fellow Romaniacs in the bar before or after. 
Go to leicestersquaretheatre.com and search Romaniacs for tickets. And it's patreon.com, search Romaniacs to find out how to support the show. Thanks, Ross. Now, like a black cloud devouring the sun, it's Brexit news. <laughs> First up, it's the return of expert bashing. Carney blamed for slump in pound, announced the Telegraph earlier this week, after the Bank of England chief warned that Britain faced an uncomfortably high risk of a no-deal Brexit and subsequent higher prices. The pound fell to its lowest level in 11 months. The governor of the Bank of England was described as the high priest of Project Fear, the paper wrote, failing to note the person describing him that way was Jacob Rees-Mogg, the archbishop of Project Bullshit. <laughs> Elsewhere, <laughs> Mogg claimed that Carney's, quote, reputation for inaccurate and politically motivated forecasting has damaged the reputation of the Bank of England. Also last week, slow-witted Brexit fundamentalist Bernard Jenkin scoffed at preparations for a no-deal Brexit on Radio 4 by comparing them to the Millennium Bug, despite the fact the Millennium Bug crisis was averted by exactly the kind of preparations he was rubbishing. So uh, experts are back in the firing line. Ian, wouldn't Carney have been guilty of sort of dereliction of duty if he hadn't warned of the dangers of no deal? Yeah, I mean, especially seeing as it's part of the Cabinet's uh, communication strategy. I mean, you can hardly have a Cabinet member come out to talk without saying... No deal responsibility. They've been talking about, you know, stockpiling food, stockpiling medicines. It's clearly part of this idea of, you know, the only good thing you could say about Theresa May's current proposals for Brexit are that they are better than no deal. And so obviously the argument runs, promote, you know, show how bad no deal would be. In his position, he obviously needs to say, look, this is a real and present danger. It is acknowledged as a real and present danger across Europe and across the British political spectrum. It's been a while, frankly, since I've heard anyone put it at below 50% likelihood. People will generally sign up to what Liam Fox said on Monday. It's about 60-40% likelihood now. When Liam Fox said that, there was no accusations from the Brexit side, but the pound fell to an 11-month low. Now, the distinction between these two individuals is obviously that Carney has to do it as part of his assessment of what he's doing with the national finances. Liam Fox is doing it partly to push that agenda and as part of a political project that he himself is responsible for. So to get to the end of that and to blame Carney, but not Fox, for actually having an impact on Sterling on the basis of their comments is frankly lunacy. Disappointing for Mog there. (laughs) (laughs) We're used to such better judgment from him. When he realises his error, boy, will his face be red. (laughs) Um, Ros, Mark Carney extended his stay at the bank to cope with Brexit, which was nice of him. Um, do you think he's having second thoughts? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think he's what? I think he's 50, uh, about 53, 54 now. And that means that he's still got another job to do after this, probably a big job. And he wants to show that he is the kind of bloke who is up to it. And what more, what better preparation for a big job than steering the Bank of England through the shitstorm that is pre-Brexit preparations. I mean, you know, it, it shows that you're competent, that you can somehow hold it together. And, you know, and, and nobody, nobody, I think, is, is going to disagree with him about his forecasts for Brexit. That's not going to, uh, they're, they're going to be borne out. So I don't see what he's got to lose, quite frankly. And it kind of leaves in June 2019 as uh, replacement to be announced. I suppose one of the one of the concerns that's, that's happening to our political culture because of Brexit <laughs> is something that's happening in uh, that's happened in America, where positions that are meant to be apolitical are politicised, which is why the Supreme Court basically doesn't work like it was intended to, because everybody knows now uh, that these are the liberal justices and these are the conservative justices, and they kind of like on most issues kind of vote according to the the party that, that appointed them. Is there uh, any danger in this talk of you know, um, Mogg accusing him of politically motivated forecasting that the position like the the head of the Bank of England is going to be politicised. 
Well, it may be, but that will be the Brexiteers politicising it. Um, I think that when it comes to, you know, he's, he's going to be replaced in very shortly. Um, his replacement hasn't yet been announced and it will probably not be, be a Brexiteer, despite everything, because the person who's in charge of choosing it is Hammond the Chancellor, basically, and he is not a fervent Brexiteer. Furthermore, there is nobody, frankly, at that level of seniority in world economics who is going to be a Brexiteer because <laughs> it's stupid. I so, you mean... Uh, Patrick Minford, Patrick <laughs> Yeah. Minford on line one. Yeah, well, it's not going to happen. And, and Hammond, Hammond has said he's, he's having a kind of global trawl for this job, so that makes it even less likely that it's going to be a Brexiteer because there aren't that many foreign Brexiteers either. So, yeah, no, no, I, I, I you know. Could it, could it be Steve Bannon in a Monopoly Man hat? <laughs> <laughs> Um, the Bernard Jenkins bit about the Millennium Bug infuriated a lot of IT workers, and you, you don't want to get them riled up. And Marcus <laughs> Fish MP on Newsnight uh, denied everything that an expert on food imports said because he said it was silly season. Um, we've often criticised the BBC's Brexit coverage for not being tough enough, but I mean, I, presumably most of us saw this clip. Yeah, and I thought, well, in fact, you you tweeted it, Alex. Yeah, yeah. But I yeah. thought Emily Maitlis was majestic here. She just she kept was, just going. He'd say some platitude, and she'd go, but "What does that mean?" She, <laughs> she was very good, and by the end, she was just staring at him. It was there amazing. Were, there were pauses where she was just staring at him with her hands actually up in the air. How many times have you wanted an interviewer to just go, "Yes, but what does that mean?" But but the the problem is also slightly a lack of research. Okay, so. Um, Bernard Jenkin wrote a letter to The Guardian last autumn uh, lambasting the government for not preparing for a no deal. And the letter was really quite specific about what Whitehall must focus on and how they must hire custom staff and no more provocation, just prepare for a no deal. And now that they're preparing for a no deal, he's coming out and saying this is all project fear. Mm -hmm. So so I just wonder, I mean, what do we do? Should we run everything by Bernard Jenkins first? <laughs> is this the right level of preparation, Bernard? Is it too much? Is it too much for you? I mean, this anonymous non-entity expenses cheat of a backbencher that is so terrific at everything, he hasn't been called to the front bench in 15 years, wants to basically have control over the level of preparation of the nation for a no-deal Brexit. You really couldn't make it up. Um, Rhys Mogg, on the other hand, again appears, makes all these statements. Um, he made a speech to, uh, to economists for free trade um, last November in which he said, many commentators have viewed last year's sharp fall in the pound as some sort of disaster. They could not be more wrong. The pound has been overvalued for some time and it needed to fall in order to make the UK more competitive and thereby to improve the UK's current account position. The Brexit vote proved to be the trigger for this welcome adjustment. The weak pound should help rebalance the economy by slowing the growth of consumer spending and boosting the growth of net exports. So which is it? Is a 17 percent devaluing of the pound a great thing because you caused it but then a 0.2 percent blip because the government of the bank of england actually has to go on radio and tell people the truth a huge disaster Mm. it took me five minutes to find this quote on google okay five minutes the, the interviewers on the Today programme know what he's coming on for, know that he's going to lambast the, the governor of the Bank of England for this devaluation of the pound. So why don't they confront him 
with the idea that six months ago he was saying, you know, a drop in the pound is really a terrific thing and we mustn't get overly hysterical about it. I don't understand this this lack of preparation, this lack of holding people to account. It happens all the time. People used to say entirely the opposite thing a year ago and they're not they're simply not challenged over that. Ian, is parading your ignorance and our sort of badge of political virility? Because they seem quite sort of proudly, you know, that, that, that Marcus Fish clip, mm. just sort of proud about not knowing stuff apart from Brexit means Brexit, what are the people? Is that because it plays well with the base or are some of these big Brexit supporters genuinely ignorant? Because, I mean, some of them are clearly astoundingly thick. And we have the, the Nadine Doris case where there's no four-dimensional chess going on behind those <laughs> blank eyes. Mm. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Because you're looking at that fish interview. I saw it from Alyssa's Twitter thing. And you, I just it was looking... And you sort of get sucked into that psychological assessment in your head of, are they being cynical or are they an idiot? Which of those two is it? And I'm a bit bored of asking myself that question every single week. And after a while, you have to come to the conclusion that there's a great big slush of motivation <laughs> going on. For an awful lot of them, they just don't know any of the detail. And you don't really need to fight on detail to win a debate on TV. Mm. The guy is there going, look, this is how it works. This is what a certification would require. This is how much we know it will affect the stuff on the border if we need it. That means you get these tailbacks. This is the point that you have it. And it's just a simple, it's not far off a statement of fact, as far as you can get to fact, when you're talking about events in the future. So a much easier thing to do, especially if you don't know the detail, is just to go believe harder. And ultimately, that's where they've been for about two years now. Just believe harder, believe harder. You get sucked into an almost religious fever and and i for different individuals it'll be different things i mean for jacob reese mogg i think it's perfectly intellectually capable of understanding the reality of the things that he's talking about it's predominantly a cynic for others i think that they are genuinely quite profoundly cretinous and stupid and that's their own deal but i'm almost tiring of of my own instinct towards wondering it on a case-by-case basis now that they're so clearly lost in the midst of their own crazed religion but it seems that in the in the throes of this crazed religion they're sort of busily trashing all the kind of experts and the civil service and non-governmental agencies mm-hmm. and the Bank of England, that they that if they ever had power, you know, if the, but if the Brexiters actually were, were running the government, are, are going to kind of, yeah, they're, they're trashing that, all the people they need to work But the more unusual with. thing is not, you know, you, they always have a ding-dong with experts that say something that they don't, that is not convenient to them. But what's unusual about the current situation is that you get a Conservative MP speaking like that to a head of a trade association going yes you're in, you know you don't know what you're talking about to to someone that represents business which is meant to be the central constituency of the conservative well, party but he's accusing a guy who makes sandwiches of, of not knowing how to make sandwiches <laughs> this, this, this guy was like he was incredibly calm dare yeah, i say it, it a tad like, dry we'll get cheddar <laughs> yeah but probably not, not tomatoes, tomatoes. <laughs> and it's just like you know we can calm down you know he's not threatening to blow himself up he was sandwiches <laughs> there is a fight against complexity in general um, and a lot of that because there's a core aspect of liberalism hasn't always just been this idea of freedom. It's it's also very much about what is the specific situation that you're looking at? What are the factors that are involved in that? What are the legal systems, the economics, the trade implications around it? And let's try to understand it. And populism in response to that on the left and the right is to deny that complexity exists at all and that the world is just a symptom of your will. If you just want something hard enough, you do it. Anything that's complex is by its own nature suspect. The truth of the world, and the way that the religious think about it is 
broad brushstroke primary colours. It's almost like, you know, when you see Hollywood films and there's always the action hero. And whenever there's a science guy who comes on to explain something, the action hero is always really dismissive towards him. He's always like, oh, don't bother me with that science shit. I'm going to jump off a rope and stab it to death. And that's basically what the Brexiters are like when presented with the trade reality. (laughs) Moving on. Apparently we need more, not fewer, right-wing policies in government. Otherwise UKIP will stage a resurgence. And who wants that? They're awful. They want to institute (laughs) right-wing policies. (laughs) According to a YouGov poll, two-fifths of people think the justice system isn't harsh enough. 16% think immigration policy should be harsher. Harsher than harassment vans on the streets and a Byzantine system that's almost impossible to appeal against. And a significant minority think that no political party represents them. Which is fair enough, but probably not the same people as the people in this room. Um, YouGov's Matthew Smith said it indicates an opportunity for any new party looking to occupy a space in the political landscape that would appeal to Leave voters. Telegraph took this as meaning the Tory party needs to nasty up or UKIP will find a new mojo. Roz, immigration in the EU have been lightning rods for the so-called disenfranchised for many years. Um, do you think the Tories will end up appeasing them endlessly and therefore kind of giving the most extreme, least democratically minded slice of the electorate uh, the, a kind of disproportionate power over policy? Well, I don't think the Tories are going to necessarily be in power for much longer. Uh, that's my feeling. But... Um, The interesting thing here is that actually immigration is no longer such a salient issue as it was. Um, well, the latest stats show if you show what, what, what people are most concerned about it's not immigration anymore it was two years ago now it's uh, the economy and things like that and that is partly because the number of immigrants coming into the country has reduced after Brexit and will continue to reduce so it's not so much for lightning rod I think what we're talking about here as ever is the, is the um, small number of nutters who have a disproportionate influence on Tory party policy But it does I think raise the question of what happens to Voters are obsessed with Brexit when Brexit is no longer the key issue. I mean, there is an argument. Mm. I'm not sure if, if the kind of stats completely bear this out. There's an argument that, that you know, uh, one of the reasons that there is less uh, angst about immigration uh, among that, that group of voters is because of Brexit, obviously, which has, you know, had, had certain kind of tangible effects, but also kind of, you know, sends the message that they like. And one of the, I think, the, the Ash Sarker argument against uh, a people's vote is, oh, well, if we don't have Brexit, then all of that kind of dark energy mm. is then going to go right back to immigrants mm. And, mm. and racism. Like, is there a kind of... Do they, is, is this group of voters, they're going to need something? Well, what we're kind of seeing now in democracies like ours, um, France and Germany and so on, is that there is about 25% support for a fairly far-right party, which is not obviously what we saw before. Uh, and is distressing. So I think those people, it's not Brexit that's necessary, the lightning rod. I think it is a whole um, ball of issues that Brexit feeds into, like immigration and like nationalism. Um, and those are very salient for those voters. But I don't think Brexit per se is necessarily that important. I think it's tied to to bigger issues about around, uh, as I say, nationalism, around a feeling of powerlessness. Alex, Greece sort of witnessed austerity producing its own sort of far-right resurgence with Golden Dawn. And actually, uh, in 2013, I went to Athens to report on a story of somebody, a rapper who'd been murdered by Golden Dawn. Pavlos Fisis. Yeah, and so ended up speaking to a lot of people and trying to understand sort of, you know, sort of Golden Dawn's power. And there were a lot of uh, quite extreme circumstances 
um, that produce that, that we don't have yet. Um, do you feel that that's... But obviously, countries across uh, Europe have their own kind of like far-right factions of varying mm-hmm. sizes. Is there anything that you think can be learned from the rise of Golden Dawn? I'm not sure how... I'm not sure where they're standing at the moment, but well, it would be useful see, here. I mean... What seems to have happened in the last couple of years is that they they sort of hit a natural ceiling of about 20% and then they really couldn't get over that. So then they started degrading from that point downwards. Um, I don't know, and there's nothing to say that this would be replicated in other countries, that natural ceiling. Um, It was the case in Greece simply because of how the, the voting breaks down. I mean, Greece is a fairly lefty country and it has a very strong far left as well which balances the entire political mm. landscape differently to me the 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 crucial factor was taking the shame away at some point the shame ceased to exist in being basically a fascist in being a neo-nazi because that's what golden dawn are um you know when i left greece uh, many years ago there were a few Golden Dawn people around, and it was spoken about in, at the supermarket in hushed tones, as if, you know, so and so's child is a member of Golden Dawn, when, as if they were the, in prison. You when know? was this then? What, um, sort of nineties, right? And then, and then, by the late two thousands, people were wearing T-shirts, sort of advertising the fact that they were Golden Dawn, and and it was really quite stark that people were no longer ashamed to be right-wing. And I think that's the Brexit effect. So aside from the lack of the the extreme circumstances that you had in Greece, the similarity is that Brexit, I think, has empowered people to feel that they have the wind behind them and they can speak freely and loudly about things that they wouldn't dare do so before. And you can look at that as a sort of great democratic victory and you could take the view that these, you know, the the boil once identified can be lanced or can be treated and it will, it, it, it's better than the whole situation just boiling under the surface. Or you can look at it as something that encourages uh, other people, especially young people, to think, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, why why should gypsies exist? You know, and you you just end up in a you end up in a situation where you have to balance those things. I think you have to give enough but not too much. And Ian, we've obviously recently had this sort of weird sort of cult of Tommy Robinson and mm. Steve Bannon sticking his hammy paws in. <laughs> um you know, and there was talk of kind of a resurgent more hard right UKIP with, you know, kind of Breitbart, Mercer money. Um, I mean, obviously, we do have what most European countries don't have, which is this, is this sort of first-past-the-post system. So you're not going to have this kind of right-wing nationalist block that you, you, know, you might have to go into coalition with. Mm. What do you think? Is that kind of... Uh, is it sort of too early to kind of to sort of panic about that? Do you think there would be a natural ceiling on it? And what kind of form... A lot of questions in this one. <laughs> what kind of form would it take? Because obviously what people worry about most of all is street violence. They're not worried so much about them coming like third in a by-election. It's, it's that kind of that spectre of violence. I always think that there's a sort of class protection here. And that's that 
you look at the far right and people assess it ultimately in class terms, even the people who might be, you know, even remotely suggestible towards uh, supporting it. And I think you look at the Tommy Robinson stuff, the street stuff, and I just don't see much appeal there. The dangerous bit is where people like Farage, I've made this point before, mm. from a sort of middle, middle class golf club perspective, a little bit of sandwich on the end of the mouth, start exposing basically the same policies, but in a way that, you know, just reeks of warm ale and just feels a bit safer and a little bit less aggressive and yeah. jackbooty. And that to me, because of the British character, because of the British temperament, is the greater danger in terms of actually having some sort of executive power, even if it's just on a regional basis. And that, that's the stuff that concerns me. I think violence in the streets, by the way, would be the end of the far right in this country. I think the, it, it's so uh, diagonally opposed to the British temperament mm. that I think if they ended up actually sort of blowing something up or, mm. you know, going out there and causing damage, that would be the end of well, them. Their ceiling, their natural ceiling would come down by about 10%. Well, UKIP overnight. had to expel a couple of people for being involved in that yep. attack on the socialist bookshop. Yep. Which they, I always thought they should call book marks with an X, but they never do. <laughs> so should they fucking really miss the trick on that That's because left is a humorless ear. You know <laughs> bastards. Yeah. They need a bit of time on the news desk at the sun, then they know how to do a headline. <laughs> but I mean, it kind of shows you that that happened very, very quickly, and UKIP are not the most, they don't have the most stringent door policy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and instantly after that, when they identified two members that were involved in the violence, they were like, out. Yes. So you're right. I mean, th that yeah. violence that we're most worried about is, in fact, the most toxic thing. Yes. The, the, the question is, if, if a couple of members of the Conservative Party were involved in it, would the Conservative Party throw them out right now? Mm -hmm. Because UKIP have no one to fear on their right. But the Conservative yeah. Party has to be a lot more cautious <laughs> about how they treat far-right elements within their own party because of the fear of a UKIP resurgence. So that's the real danger. The real danger is what the Telegraph is suggesting, that in order to appease them, we allow their policies to seep into the mainstream. What we do need to deal with is this idea that you placate the right by enacting its policy agenda. Now, at the moment, we are seeing what that entails. We yeah. have adopted UKIP's economic agenda, which is basically... Just no like, sandwiches. We reduce... That's yeah, what that exactly. The no horror one, of no, no sandwiches. And no one to cut them. <laughs> <laughs> no fucking tomatoes. No, That's no tomatoes and no one to slice them. <laughs> so, like, we, we have put our entire economy to victims of the idea that you must reduce immigration. It was there in the referendum campaign. It's there afterwards. All of the stuff that we're talking about with Ireland, with the rest of the debate, is because we're not going to be in the single market, which is in itself a decision based entirely on immigration. If you look at, let's say you look at that polling and look at the way that people feel about penal justice, how tough we are in our prisons, my entire life we've had ministers responding to that. The Tory ministers under New Labour, exactly the yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. Whenever the they saw, of New Labour, yeah. yeah. Whenever they saw anything remotely progressive going on in prisons, and by the way, the progressive policies overwhelmingly are the most effective in cutting reoffending. they clamped down on that thing immediately. Just, you know, a few years ago, we had Chris Grayling getting rid of the incentives and earned privileges scheme, making it almost impossible for people to resist being uh, humiliated on, on the basis of hearsay evidence by their guards in prison. Getting rid of all of those things you see in the sun of, like, they've got a fucking PlayStation, they've got this, they've got that. It makes no difference. They've enacted the policies and that polling for prison should be tougher. So is it exactly the same place? By enacting the policy, you don't fix the problem. You just give more and more fuel to what is ultimately a culture warfare. I know this is how politics works, but, you know, just when you the way that you put that there, just if you look really broadly at that, at that telegraph suggesting that you should put policies, these policies in place, not because they're right, 
and they're effective huh. and they will solve issues like prisons. But in order to sort of, you know, put a lid on kind of, you know, put a ceiling on UKIP. And it's just like, but that, the way that that was just like almost sort of a given, it was like the idea mm. that it might work yeah. might be a good idea. Which yeah. no, it's, it's, it's not even, it's just like, oh, well, a bunch of, a bunch of racists want it. So we should think about it. But a lot of policy is like that. I mean, I know, it, yeah, I it, came, just, it came as a shock to no, me no, when no, I started. Shocked. No, but I started thinking about policy <laughs> and people started saying, oh, there's such a thing as evidence-based policy making. And I was like, well, everything should be evidence-based. Surely all, all, all policy should be evidence-based. But no, there is a general acceptance of political science and actually relatively little policy is evidence-based. It's what people, there's a general feeling that people might want at a particular time. And then you kind of try and fit the facts to meet those requirements and it's insane so politics is terrible in the last few years whenever i think back to the one moment the one tiny thing the sort of butterfly flapping its wings in beijing sort of moment i think of uh, uh, brown apologizing to jillian yeah, whatever exactly. she was called mm, yeah uh, you know to that bigoted woman it, it somehow seems to me like the lightning rod where everything came together. Mm. And it seems to me that a different reaction to that would have changed almost everything falling out of it. I know that this m- might sound silly and it's purely an instinctive reaction, but I always think back on that. Mm. Yeah, a lot of the time, everything, I'm just reading about McCarthyism at the moment and you just realise mm. that actually... It was only stopped by certain people saying certain things at exactly the right moment, the right moment. and that actually it was allowed to kind of metastasize and become really kind of monstrous and life ruining for quite a while before it was brought down. And yeah. it, it does sometimes come down to these these moments. Yeah. Finally, on the news front, latest to join the ranks of Ramonas who are talking Britain down is the Department of Health, <laughs> which is warning that women will be forced to leave their jobs to care for ill or aged relatives once we lose our EU care workers after Brexit. Uh, it mm. specifies women because they're statistically far more likely to be forced to go out work to look after relatives. There could be 28,000 fewer care workers by five years after Brexit if we can't recruit from the EEA. There are currently 90,000 people from the EEA working in the care sector and the number is more than doubled since 2013, so we're very reliant on them. Ros, this seems to be a kind of... Um, this is something that's going to hit a lot of the people that voted for Brexit and is is, is one of those sort of unintended consequences. Mm. Yeah, uh, and it's going to be one of those things that does not cut through quickly because people who are being cared for do not have political voices. Um, they don't have the means to make their voices heard. Perhaps they're lucky and, you know, one of their relatives is a columnist on the Times, so it gets a bit more attention. But other than that, they don't. And the problem here is that when you need people to do low-skilled jobs and caring is quite a... Well, I mean, arguably, it's a high-skilled job. I'm sure Alex would, would, would agree. Uh, but in effect, it's a low-skilled job in the, when people think about it in economic terms. Um, you, there is no pressure, really, for visas to be made available for these people to come into the country. And it will not be them, uh, the visas for these people, that will be the priority. It will be other sectors like IT and so on and banking who are crying out to have their allocation of uh, foreign people. So you'll have relatively few visas for lower school people and almost certainly those will be short term. 
that means that the people attracted to them will have no hope of moving into a different job because their presence in the country mm. will be tied to a particular job and they won't be able to move on. Mm. And unlike the people from the EEA who have come over and worked here, they don't have the chance to move <clears> up. And you found that with a lot of, you know, Poles, for example, who came over here 10 to 15 years ago who are now doing much more uh, demanding jobs, uh, having initially moved into things like the care sector. But because there isn't that incentive, you find the really desperate coming here. And you will find a, a, a smaller pool in the EEA because there isn't a long-term hope and there isn't a hope of having your relatives come in with you, for example. So that's a disincentive as well. And that's going to be the big problem when you're trying to attract care workers. I mean, Stella Creasy last week, when I wasn't here, but I, but I listened. I'm a listener to the show. Um, you know, she was... a patron back <laughs> I'm I'm not. No. <laughs> I got my mug for free. But she was talking about how, you know, Brexit hits, uh, you know, some of, some of the, the hardest off. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, what, what I, I think you never want when you're talking about, you know, who Brexit is going to affect. I don't think there's any kind of like... Uh, you, you know, Yabu actions have consequences kind of thing here. Yeah. And you're actually just going, OK, you've got some, you know, they might be le- um, less wealthy, older, more vulnerable. And there's actually a real kind of like, I feel this real sort of emotional wrench where it's like, this is this is going to, you know, your life will get worse. And I wonder if it had been put like that whether we wouldn't be in this situation, whether the, the mistake was sort of going for complexity and, and nuance and loads of data and graphs and stats instead of telling people, you'll be sitting in your own poo with no sandwiches. That's Brexit. <laughs> but yeah, sitting but in it, your poo with no sandwiches. But this would be, it would be Project Fear again if it just went, well, yeah. there might be problems having people it care. D- they go, how dare you and threaten then you're poor sitting old in your people. poo with no sandwiches. But people don't care. About, I mean, people do not uh, care about... Um, what is going to happen to them when they are old. We know this because they're not prepared to shell out a bit extra in taxes when they're <laughs> younger true. in order to pay for it. It is simply a total denial because nobody wants to think that they're going to be in that situation so they don't yeah. think they're in that situation. I, I, old I people mean, presumably care, though. The, I, I kind of var- the, the group that voted most overwhelmingly for leave, surely they care because it's probably happening to them or it's in the very near future. Do they not? I mean, I mean, there's a, there's an argument that this will just push salaries up for carers because they right. are a completely essential thing, which may not be a bad thing, and it may not be a bad thing for more people to look after, uh, you know, elderly relatives a little more. That's just a personal view. I think it's become a little a little too easy an option. Hmm. I mean, we've got. <laughs> uh, to, to sort of tie the two strands that we were talking about together, we have a, 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 a lovely woman called Yelena from Russia that does the night shift with mum. So it's always either me or one of my sisters during the day, and then she takes over in the evening so we can get a decent night's rest. Now, Yelena is lovely. She's also a Golden Dawn supporter. And she's brilliant with mum. She's a really nice person, but you simply cannot get it through to her that she would be on the second boat out after the brown people <laughs> if, if Golden Dawn were in power. She just doesn't get it. She does not get it. She thinks, she thinks about everything in terms of this great Islamic threat from the mm. East. And I don't think that's explored enough, and I think that that's dismissed, and I think it was cynically exploited. I don't think it was a coincidence that there were leaflets dropping through old people's letterboxes with Turkey 
and only sort of Syria uh, and Iraq marked next to it with a massive red arrow that said, you know, 60 million people coming over to the UK. It was really deliberate. But it's kind of like there wasn't a narrative there that they were scaring old people, which is, in fact, what they were doing, whereas if Remain had led on a potential care crisis, that would have been seen as shameful, needlessly upsetting old people. Of course. It's, it's almost as if the rules are not the same for both sides. Yeah, it's never going to be a fair fight in that way. But, I mean, you, we can never expect our arguments to be non-countered by the other side. I mean, they will be. The thing is, you've just got to keep on having mm. the fight. And the funny part is, what if you win, everyone forgets the counter to the arguments that took place. Of it's course. like whichever side wins the football game, they always act like they were faultless, you know, up until yeah. that point, yeah. and any any faults were forgotten. <clears throat> so, I mean, we, we, of course that would be the counter-argument, but you just fight it anyway. Yeah, because yeah. the parallel reality is never explored and will never no. be explored. So if, well, if something happened in Brexit, it was stopped, I imagine there will be a core of people that will always believe it would it would have led us to a land of milk and honey. But that's why Bernard Jenkins' Millennium Bug thing is so revealing, because it's yeah. like the, you can just go, oh, I remember fussing about the Millennium Bug, because nothing went wrong. Whereas if we'd done nothing and it had gone wrong, yeah, completely different story, mm. but people don't remember the thing that didn't happen. Yes. Mm. As I said earlier, Brexit's in summer recess and it looks a lot like the hard Brexiters are taking the opportunity to normalise the prospect of no deal by making it look somehow less terrifying. Rees-Mogg, as we've said before, said no deal is nothing to be scared of. Ian Duncan-Smith said it shouldn't be called no deal, it should be called a no-trade deal, which is fine. (laughs) And Liam Fox is busy blaming European intransigence for his party's failure to send Europe any options to disagree with. But by talking about no deal in such terms, are the Brexiters making it sound familiar and therefore acceptable? Ian, you wrote a massive and terrifying piece for politics.co.uk headlined, this is what No Deal Brexit actually looks like. Uh, we'll put it on the Facebook page. You very recently called it probably the most demented policy put forward by mainstream British politicians in the modern era. Um, and you actually did some, you actually went and did some reporting and speaking to people. Thanks. Which you know, why, is, why, why are you surprised by that? It's not, it's not the first no, time. No, I'm not surprised. No, I just, I just love it because there's a lot of opinions like the ones I'm giving now. <laughs> no, and it's kind of like, I just love the way at the bottom of the piece, you were just like, these are all the people I spoke to. You know, you're not just going like, as indeed most of the Brexiter op-eds in the Telegraph are, just kind of like whistling Dixie, just like, this is what mm-hmm. I'd like to happen. It was like, you actually spoke to people. And who did you talk to? And what did you learn uh, that you didn't know before? So mostly when I write these pieces, the, the balance that you want is academics and people in the industry. And if you start with the academics, you get the broad outline of how this stuff works. So for ages, for months, I spent time talking to academics when I wrote for the book, uh, talking to sort of trade experts. And then you go talk to the people who do it and you get a really different picture of how things work. So, for instance, in trade, it all felt quite formalized when I was writing the book and, and according to these rules. And this is how it goes. And then you talk to the, to the actual trade negotiators and not mentioning the fact that they're pretty fucking dreadful human beings to a man, but like they will they will tell you the most horrific stories of like when it came actually and there was about two hours left and then two you know my boss and their boss picked up the phone and just started shouting numbers at each other and then that's how they settled it and you're like my god people's livelihoods were based on this completely chaotic hysterical last minute conversation so in this case it was a bunch of academics who work in sort of food technology and food security. And a lot of people, especially in the veterinary areas of the food industry, most there's a couple of industry names there. There's also quite a few industry names there who chose not to be named in the piece. Um, And they are in a state of complete despair, really. They are astonished by the stuff that they see coming out every day. There is no understanding of what they want. They don't see anyone talking to them. 
when they see what ministers are saying, they're even more frightened because the message that you sort of get if you start piecing together what ministers say about the events of No Deal is that they would just break open the borders to everything. One minister said we'd have mutual recognition with the EU. Now, if there's no deal, what that amounts to is just saying, we'll recognise, we know that they're not going to do it for us. So basically, we'll open up the border. Chris Grayling, Transport Secretary, said under no conditions would there be any checks at the border at Dover. If you do that, you are essentially saying that any good with any ingredient can come into our market. Now, once you do that, it doesn't, I mean, the EU is not going to take your shit because you just open it up to every smuggler, everyone trying to get in any chemical that they want into any piece of food or drink. But also the rest of the world is not going to take our exports anymore. So the, the one panic response that you would have to this eventuality in the short term, in the days, we're literally talking days afterwards, would be the thing that would shrivel up and implode your food export industry yeah. in the medium term. Well, you mentioned in the piece uh, BSE crisis, which was like, I mean, that's actually an example that you can look at, unlike the Millennium Bug. That did happen. Yes, exactly. And you could see what happened to, you know, to the economy. What a huge crisis that was when there was like one food item. Yeah, well, plus 144 people died. I mean, just in the UK, I mean, more died, you know, on the continent. And that's the useful thing. So whenever they talk about bureaucracy and, oh, it's just these highly legalistic, bureaucratic European politicians, why do they need to have just room? You just imagine if right now, today, there is a child having a hamburger where there is some kind of disease uh, from the beef that it is eating and that it gets sick. And what are the headlines tomorrow? The headlines are, how did this get into the country? Where was it stored? Who produced it? Who put it on sale? Those guys go in front of the cameras. They go up in front of common select committees, ministerial heads roll, industry heads roll. And that's why you have a very careful system for where food comes from. The EU system for third countries is the certification system. It's having a veterinary presence where the food is produced, having it vouching for the food in transport and checking it on the border. And that's a lot of checks that you do. And you look at the Imperial College study of what happens on the border. If you go from the current two minutes of checks to four minutes of checks at Dover, within one day, you have a 20-mile tailback on our side. Okay. Now, the kind of checks that we're talking about are much longer than four minutes. I mean, if you take seal something off and send it for sampling, that's 36 hours that you're waiting for that one piece. So we would quickly see quite extraordinary chaos taking over. But again, it is not because they're being bureaucratic. It is because if you care about animal welfare and human health, you will have these tests in place. And the EU will most certainly have them in place. If we decide not to do it, not only would we be lying to our own population when we promised them high food standards after Brexit, we'd be putting them their own health at risk, we'd be putting animal welfare at risk, and we'd be destroying our capacity to export our own food. You also talk about this, this, this concept that uh, Sandwich Man on Newsnight spoke about as well. Sorry, Sandwich Man, I can't remember your name. Um, which, was, which was just in time, which I think is something that a lot of people who have, haven't had cause to look into this before um, we'll probably quite find quite startling, just like how little wiggle room there is in the food. Yeah, uh, in loads of, I mean, you have it also in manufacturing, but in food, you especially want it because when you, you want a fresh tomato, you know, yeah. and nobody really questions about, I don't know why we're quite obsessed with tomatoes today. Um, then nobody really thinks like I'm having this fresh tomato. Oh, yeah, tomato. so I've just got to do an, an ad read from the, <laughs> from the Tomato Board of Europe. I can't who likes tomatoes? I like tomatoes. <laughs> Ian likes tomatoes. Okay, so you you have it, and you never think, how the fuck did this incredibly fresh piece of produce from the other side of a continent get into my mouth so quickly? And the reason it does that is just in time, that you're not storing things, which Mm. costs money. When you leave a supermarket and you take out um, a pack of salami or whatever, 
Somewhere it is notifying the supermarket that you're one down. That is notifying the people that send it to them that they're one down. And that is notifying producers that it's one down. That system happens underneath your feet. And if you do it, say, Wednesday lunchtime, that good is expected to be back in the supermarket on Friday morning. That is how fast it is operating. And it needs to operate that quickly for us because we're used to food from all over the continent and we don't produce our own food. We make about 60% of our own food. Yeah. So by that, we but require... But surely that means system. they need us more than we need them. Ah, uh, Yes, you would have thought so, right? <laughs> Except that, that ultimately we are a comparatively small part of the, of the export market for the EU. Of course, but yeah. nevertheless, it's always true. The EU does get hurt in all of these examples. And I still think that one of the things that mitigates against no deal, like the example I always use that is there's two men in a room and one of them is aiming the gun at his kneecaps and the other one's aiming it at his head. We're aiming it at our head. We are more crazy than they are. But that does not mean that anyone wants to get shot in the kneecaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and the EU doesn't either. And that is still one of the things that mitigates against no deal that should provide some kind of protective barrier if we really go up to the edge. That there so, will be an adult in the room, albeit not from our side. Yeah, Basically. exactly. That's what we're hoping. Can I one more, one more quick thing on that, actually, which is just something that I, someone told Sam Lowe, told me from the Centre of European Report. Sam, Sam Lowe is absolutely fucking brilliant, by the way. Um, he, he told me the one thing that had given me hope more than anything, really, for this year, I think, which is what can always concern me about No Deal was that it's one of those things that, like, an hour, sorry, a day after it happened, there'd be 90% public opposition to No Deal because you would fucking see it. Right. But before then, you're not seeing the effects. So people don't go that place. Yeah, yeah. His point was, actually, this is a very heavily signposted negotiation and debate. And the moment that it really looked like there was not going to be any deal, the markets would lose their shit. So we're talking January, February time when they really thought, oh, God, they're not just talking. They're actually going to do this thing. Mm. And we would see a quite precipitous drop in sterling. We would see very, very, very severe Uh, market conditions. And on that basis, you would then almost certainly see some kind of hasty, patched together emergency provision mm. that would lock into place for a very time limited period. We're talking weeks, not months. And then suddenly the decisions we'd have to make would have to happen in that time period. Now, that's a bad scenario, but it's still the best thing, the most optimistic thing that anyone's told me this year. Well, Roz, I wanted to talk to you a bit about the, the polls. When I see that 40% of voters support no deal... Um, I can't believe that every one of them really understands what that would mean. No. Do you think that people still, a lot of people, uh, still believe the no deal is just things stay the same yeah. rather than everything goes to hell? Yeah, because it's deal or no deal, isn't it? That's what you think of when you think deal <laughs> or no deal. And if no deal just means you carry straight on and you just didn't take I've never seen it. What happens if you take no deal and deal or no deal? Um, you sit in your own poop with no sandwiches. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a, but with it's no Edmunds. That's what happens. <laughs> That's Doesn't what happens. Is, that, is everything? Are you deprived of food by Noel Edmonds? We, yeah. <laughs> it means I mean, vital medicine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we need we need a new we need a new term because no deal. It's just I think the semantics of Brexit are very important. I think I'm probably alone in this view, but I think that Brexit only happened because of the word Brexit. Um, I actually think that once they solidified and they, they came up with a concrete concept which meant leaving the European Union and called it Brexit, then it became more possible in people's minds. And uh, I think that it's almost the same with no deal. Because no deal is there, if you like, then of course it's okay, because people wouldn't be talking about it if it wasn't okay, uh, obviously. Uh, and we need a different phrase. And I don't know what that phrase is because I don't know what could possibly convey the, the shitstorm that comes after Brexit. But but something that is not evoking a game show would be a good start. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, 
There was another really uh, weird poll, I thought, that said large numbers of people don't care what sort of Brexit we get. They just want it to be over and done with, which is 75% of Leavers and 48% of Remainers. But again, I mean, just looking at that, that's 48% of Remainers. That's not 48% of members just going, no deal is fine. I mean, it just seems like what, what is the point? I can't remember the polling companies. I'm not singling them out here. Delta. Delta. <laughs> but I mean, that seems like moronically phrased because of course if you just go would you like to stop thinking about Brexit Mm. I'm surprised only that number said (laughs) yes please I mean most people in the country maybe even some people in this room right now my hand is up (laughs) everyone would would love to stop thinking about Brexit but that's not something that you know that is going to produce an, an interesting poll result. Well you know I this gives, is what gives me hope and I actually think Brexit support is a lot softer than some people make it out to be. A lot of people make it out to be. I think there is a hardcore of Brexit supporters who would be genuinely devastated if we didn't do Brexit. I think the rest would be like oh well whatever. Um, if, some, if there was an alternative scenario and if you came up with a vision for this country that actually improves some of the things they're worried about, which nobody is bloody doing uh, because we're so preoccupied with Brexit we can't tackle all the other stuff, then people would just, oh god, you know. Yeah, we waste a lot of money. The thing is there's this sunk cost fallacy thing as well going on, which is, you know, the sunk cost fallacy is that if you've spent a load of money uh, on something, then you might as well go ahead and do it, even if it's even if it's a total mistake to do it. And that totally is, that. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that is also a problem. But if in some way you can persuade people that actually turning back now would not be as expensive as carrying on, then I think I, I still have hope that we can reverse this thing. I still have hope. Well, Alex, we've got a kind of... New, well, it's, it's not quite a news void, a parliamentary news void. We've still got lots of racism yeah, yeah, yeah. to fill up the news. Um, and therefore the prospect of no deal just sort of like sits there like a mm, turd in an growly. unventilated room. Yeah. Um, is there something... It seems that every, every week we come up... You know, there's more... We're talking about more warnings, more pieces of evidence, more industry bodies yeah. uh, saying this is going to be awful. Um, and... There still doesn't seem to be enough movement against it. Is there anything that we can uh, that we can do, like to to sort of, you know, that well, listeners here to kind of stop people from thinking that No Deal is a kind of a legitimate solution, or do you think it's a case of, as Ian said, it's just again, as it so often seems to be the case, you just have to wait until a crunch point. I, I think it's a war of attrition. I think the more of this stuff that is revealed, uh, a few minds will be changed each time. So in a couple of weeks, the government plans to release the first tranche of advice to business for a no-deal scenario. I mean, that will be big, I think, because then you will suddenly have people who work in those industries, their mind really focused on what this might mean for them. Um, and so it will be this war of attrition where uh, we explore the effects in this sector, in that sector, on medicines and food. And and this percentage that you see of people going, I just want it all over and done with, will grow and grow. And when the opportunity is offered mm. to actually make it go away by going, look, <laughs> let's just cancel the whole thing, I think there will be a tipping point, and I don't think... I don't think it will be a marginal um, victory for cancelling Brexit. I think it will be a, really a significant one. Just before we wrap that one up, I just want to say on the, on the question of, of business being anti-Brexit, my new favourite Remainer 
is Deborah Meaden on oh, Twitter. Do you yeah. follow her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of yeah. Dragon's Den fame. Hmm. Yeah, she really she is. just yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. She's yeah. like she's like really smart, really straightforward, yeah. blunt in that kind of Dragon's Den, I'm out kind of <laughs> yes. way. That's her catchphrase. Um, and it's kind of like, I think it's really important to, I mean, uh, Naomi talks about collecting lots of different voices from, yeah. from various parts of British life. And that seems exactly the kind of kind of, it's a celebrity business person who isn't Dyson or Weatherspoon. Um, and she's just saying it really clearly. She's not, you know, hashtag this yeah, or that yeah, or the yeah, other. No, she's no, just and, going, like, this isn't working. I keep talking has, to business people and, and they don't like it. she has a lot of investment in a lot of businesses yeah. in a lot of sectors. And she's saying everyone is telling me the same thing, that this will be a disaster and they're really scared. You know, I'm not making this up. But whether that penetrates fully, I don't know. I genuinely don't know. Faith is a powerful shield. Um, and, you know, like, but like I said, I think it's a war of attrition. I think it's like those video games where the, the final baddie appears and you have to kind of really shoot at them loads and loads and loads until their shields are down and then they just explode to smithereens. They're called maybe, an end-of-level boss, Alex. End of level. You, you've maybe, worked in the video games industry. Maybe, <laughs> maybe all the other, ah! the, the other dragons will arrive, like, um, like Thor in Avengers Affinity War. Where sort of Meaden's got them all. I and all saw that and it's the like, other oh, day. Oh, it's Bafitis and <laughs> Jones and Bannatine. <laughs> what oh. are you on about? I'm sorry, I've, I've no clue what you're on about. No, it's about a very Beatles exciting. It's a very exciting moment. <laughs> sorry, it's it just it's so just because you know the only dragons I see are in Beast Quest at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming to the end of the show, and Brexit time capsule is appearing before our eyes, like David Cameron's festival caravan. What's going in our archive of things we're going to miss if we leave the EU and the things we might need if we're out on our own, which Alex assures us will not happen. Ross, you've been away for a bit. Take it up with Alex. Take it up with Alex. (laughs) (laughs) Ross, you've been away for a bit, so it's your turn to choose something for the time capsule. What's going in? Uh, Well, it's the European health insurance card, of course, because I'm off on holiday, hopefully, in two days' time. And I was going through with passports and stuff, and I suddenly realised that my son's has expired. Oh, no. And I um, went to the website and had to apply for a new one. So it was very much on my mind. But this card is obviously very important. Now, we had a lot of rubbish from David Davis last year about how it was still... He said that it would still be available to people after after Brexit. In actual fact, it would only be available to people after Brexit if they weren't living in in the UK. Um, and since then, there is no guarantee, of course, that it will be available because nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. So this may well be the last time I get to, to use it. And Aww. yeah, I know. And well, it I means ho- I hope that you have a minor injury so you get to use it. Is that no, 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 no? No, no. I mean, you know, it just basically means you know, it's going to waste. Insurance, insurance costs will go up a lot as a result because uh, they will, it won't be that basic stuff won't be covered anymore. Yeah, you think you'll be able to fly out there? You won't. No, no, probably not. No. So that's mine, yeah. Thanks, Roz. Finally, we always end the show with a clip of a non-English EU language, and we want to hear yours. If you can speak one of the languages from the community, then record an appropriate line or two on your phone and email it to info at romaniacs.com. Keep them clean and non-libelous. It's hard, I know. And we'll use the best ones. Here is listener Hal Martins with a bit of Portuguese. Theresa May. Vamos a trabalhar. It means Theresa May, go back to work. And that's the end of the show. Thanks to Alex Rosanian for coming in. Thank you. My Cheers. pleasure. We'll play out as ever with our fantastic theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a salute to some of our Patreon backers. 
Firstly, a very special shout to Patreon backer Mark Neal, who accidentally got blocked from our Twitter feed because our producer Andrea either has fat fingers or is suffering from the heat. We are so sorry, Mark. You have been restored to full status and we love you very much. <laughs> it's a big thank you from me to Anne Murphy, Mikhail, Amy and Johadin, Eric Van Der Wout and Henry Kirby. Massive thanks and hello from me to Manda Scott, Alex Uthwaite, Marie Anne P and Emma Jane Rosenberg. And thanks very much from me to Daniel Connolly, Robert Stroud, Ian Harris and Rachel Greenham. We'll see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ross Taylor, Alex Andreo and Ian Dunt. The producer was me, Andrew Harrison, and studio production was by Jack Claremont. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.